Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the wines of the world, the different regions, the different grape varieties, and the history and culture of wine. In this episode, we turn our attention to the United States of America, looking at the history of wine production in this vast country, and also a little bit about where the East Coast is right now. And the reason we look start with the East Coast is because that's where the United States of America began. The Puritans landed in 1620 on the Mayflower, and that is the origins and foundation of this country. I've always held a theory that the reason the US has such a conservative attitude towards alcohol is because of the puritanical beginnings. But in fact, the Puritans actually brought with them lots of alcohol, beer and wine, to sustain them in their newfound land. The reason they drank beer is because they mistrusted water. The water in London and other European cities was extremely filthy and dangerous to drink, so they would drink beer instead. So that's why they brought beer with them. And wine, of course, would also be used for religious purposes. And even though the water they found in the United States of America was pristine, they still preferred to drink beer. What they also found on the East Coast was were vines growing wild. And they were excited to find these vines because that meant they could make wine. However, the wine that they made from these vines was was not very nice, and that's because there are different species of vines, and these are the North American vines, which are now used as rootstock for European vines. So then they tried to plant European vines, but they found it very difficult to grow them in the difficult conditions of the East Coast. It's very cold in the winter, it's hot and humid in the summer, and so getting those grapes ripe can be very, very tricky. Eventually they came up with the idea of crossing the North American vines with the European vines, thinking that the North American vines were hardy enough for these conditions, but the European vines would produce good quality wines. And so these hybrids uh, are still used today, grapes like uh, Concord and Norton, and they do get ripe and they can make wine, but again it's not particularly good quality. And in, still today in New York, which is the third largest wine producing state in the US, about a quarter of all vines planted are hybrid grapes. And those hybrid grapes are very useful because they will ripen in difficult conditions. After Phylloxera, these hybrid varieties were planted around Europe, particularly in France and Madeira, which suffered greatly from Phylloxera, but they just do not produce quality wine. And now EU laws prohibit the use of hybrid vines for quality, but there's still a lot of them planted in the US where it's not easy to grow vines. So New York now does have a greater emphasis on quality. This began in the 1970s with the uh, plantings of uh, Vitis vinifera. There are a couple of regions in New York which really do produce good quality wine. One of them is Long Island, off the coast of New York City. And land is very expensive there, but it has been a farmland for centuries, and a lot of the producers are old farming families. Very difficult conditions here because of the Atlantic influence, which really does batter Long Island, and there can be hurricanes. So vintage variation is huge. In very good vintages, the wines are exceptional. In very bad vintages, the wines are undrinkable. So it really does vary. The highest quality grape here is Merlot. Cabernet Sauvignon just won't ripen reliably on Long Island. And so it is a Bordeaux style of wine. But much more consistent in quality is Finger Lakes, which is about two hours drive inland from New York City on the Canadian border. Called Finger Lakes because they look like fingers. And vines here are planted on the slopes of the, of the lakes, rather like in Germany, or perhaps even more pertinently like in Austria. Riesling is the qu quality grape here, producing wines with high acidity, and often off-dry or even medium-dry to balance that high acidity. 
Cabernet Franc is also very good here as well, Loire-style green and herbaceous. Again, quality does vary. There are, some, there are a small handful of very good wineries in the Finger Lakes region, and there are plenty that aren't very good. It's all about what's going to happen in the future and what is happening now, rather than a foundation of uh, consistent quality. Going further south outside, out of New York, is Virginia. And Virginia is the, the home of Thomas Jefferson, who was the first ambassador for the US to France. And while in Paris, he gained a love of wine, particularly Bordeaux. And when he was back in the States in Virginia, he tried to make wine, but failed, even though he tried his whole life. But again, like New York, producers are aiming to produce high quality wine in Virginia. The conditions are hot and humid, but there are pockets where um, conditions are ideal for grape growing. And there's some very good Viognier and also some good Cabernet Franc made in Virginia. Again, quality is variable. This is still a state that's learning how to make wine. So that's the East Coast. Far more important in US wine production and wine history is the West Coast, but it's a very different history from that of the East Coast. As I mentioned in a previous episode, vines were first planted in Mexico in 1525, and then the Spanish went south to Peru, to Chile and Argentina, so their wine histories go back to the mid-1500s. The Spanish just never bothered to go north of Mexico until the 1770s, so 250 years after planting vines in Mexico, they finally made it to California. And the Jesuit missionaries made their way up uh, California, or what is now Highway 101, and every 20 miles or so, or 30 kilometers, after a day's walk, they would stop and build a mission. And these missions still exist today. By 1802, they made it to San Francisco, and San Francisco is an extremely beautiful bay, and so they thought they would settle there for permanently. But as Mark Twain later observed, there is no winter colder than a San Francisco summer. If you go to San Francisco in the winter, it's probably going to be 15 degrees. If you go there in the summer, it's probably going to be 15 degrees. So it's a very moderate climate, and it's really difficult to get anything ripe here. And so the Jesuits gave up, and they went further north to Sonoma, which was their last mission. It was the first one to be built under Mexican rule. Mexico became independent in 1818, and they planted vines in 1819 in Sonoma, where the Sebastiani winery is now, and the mission was built in 1821. And that was the last mission they ever built, and the only one under Mexican rule. And the Mexicans established a presence in, in the Bay Area around Sonoma, because uh, the Russians came down from Alaska, and so the Mexicans had to uh, ward them off, and they did so successfully. But that's why there was an area in Sonoma called Russian River Valley, and a town called Sebastopol, because of that Russian brief Russian presence. So the small number of Californians living in the state got up fed up with Mexican rule because Mexico really wasn't interested in developing California. And so in 1842 they rebelled and formed the Bear Republic, 1846 declared independence, and in 1848 joined the United States of America. Coincidentally enough, in 1849 gold was discovered, and thus began the gold rush, the first wave of immigration into California from east. Within a year, the gold rush had dried out, and so all those uh, European immigrants did what they did back in Europe. They farmed the land, and a lot of them planted vines, particularly in Napa and Sonoma, realising that these two counties were pristine areas for grape growing. And the industry um, really got going. 1857 was the first commercial winery in Sonoma, the Buena Vista Winery. Napa followed shortly. The Charles Krug Winery was established in 1861, and by the 1880s, the Californian wine industry was a kind of a big thing. It's about 120 wineries in Napa alone, 
And these wines were exported because the Europeans were suffering from phylloxera, so California wine was being drunk abroad. And things were going better and better, but 1880s just saw the peak, because 1890s saw California hit with phylloxera, just at the point that the French wine industry was recovering from phylloxera, so it lost its audience. And although it recovered from phylloxera quite quickly, then came Prohibition, which uh, decimated the wine industry. And so by the time Prohibition was repealed in the early 1930s, the wine industry really barely existed. It had only survived by selling grapes for home winemakers and also to the church. And then it was the Depression, so no one was really drinking good quality wine. And then it was the Second World War. So by the time of 1945, the wine industry had, was, was a shell of what it had previously been. And there were only 12 wineries in Napa Valley compared to the 120 just 60 years previously. Those 12 wine wineries were determined to make quality wine. They really believed that Napa Valley had that potential. And at that same time came along a Russian emigre called Andrei Shelyshev. And he'd lived in France a while after escaping the Russian Revolution. And he brought with him knowledge of how to make wine and how to grow grapes. And so he educated those local wineries that had forgotten pretty much everything that their forefathers had known such as where to plant the grapes, which grapes to plant. He advised them to plant Cabernet Sauvignon, a very prescient piece of advice, and also how to ferment the wines, the proper fermentation temperature, and also about aging them in oak. So the quality of Napa wine quickly uh, developed, and by the late 60s, early 70s, there were a small group of uh, people coming in to Napa Valley to make wine. By early 1970s, there were about 30 wineries in Napa. And its reputation amongst those who knew was quite high. There was a British wine merchant called Harry Waugh who was um, extolling the virtues of Napa wine to anyone in Britain who would listen. Robert Mondavi was marketing the wines and he's really the, the founding father of the, the marketing legend of Napa Valley. Hugh Johnson, a British wine writer, said in 1970 that for the wines of California to succeed, then the people of the USA have to start drinking them, because people in the US just did not think that their own country could produce high-quality wines, so they weren't drinking those wines. And then the big moment was 1976, the so-called Judgment of Paris, when Stephen Spurrier, a British wine merchant in Paris, organised a tasting of California wines against French wines. And it was supposed to be completely informal and casual, and not really of any consequence, apart from introducing US wines to um, French wine critics and winemakers, just to see how they would stand up against their French counterparts. And so there were 10 Chardonnays from California, and 10 White Burgundies, and 10 Cabernet Sauvignons, and 10 Left Bank Bordeaux. And they started tasting these wines completely informally, chatting to each other, they were blind, and they were quite disparaging of some of those wines, and it just happened to be that they were disparaging about the white burgundy. France in the 1970s was going through a difficult time where it had become very complacent about the quality of its wines and didn't really feel that there was any competition from anyone else. So they weren't trying as hard as they should be. And there were people in France who knew that and who were trying to shake up the industry. And the Judgment of Paris is one of those moments which jolted French wine out of its complacency. And so in the morning, it turned out that the their favourite white wine was Chateau Montalena's Chardonnay from Napa Valley. In the afternoon, they took it a bit more seriously when they realised that the US wines were more than standing up to the French wines. But still, the wine, the red wine that won was Stag's Leap Cabernet Sauvignon from 1973. One of the reasons this tasting was 
became so famous is because there was only one journalist present and he was from the US. He was a New York writer for Time magazine. And so the story made time and all of a sudden people in the US realized that the wines coming from California were every bit as good as those from France and that they should be drinking domestic wines and not just international wines. And that was the moment that California really began to be taken seriously. And you could also argue that it's the moment that New World wine began to be taken seriously. The event has been mythologized as a terrible film called Bottle Shock, which is very loosely about the judgment of Paris. Do not believe anything that is in that film. It's a very romantic take on those events. Uh, the journalist who attended the event also wrote a book called Judgment of Paris, not particularly reliable because he doesn't actually know that much about wine. The great irony of the Judgment of Paris is that the best California Cabernet Sauvignon in that tasting was Ridge's Montebello, and Ridge are based in Santa Cruz which, Mountains, which is south of San Francisco. It came fifth in that tasting. In 1986, when they had a retasting, again blind, of the exact same wines from the same vintages, Ridge's Montebello won. And in 2006, when they did the same tasting with the same wines, Ridge's Montebello won again. And Ridge Montebello is without doubt the greatest wine in California. But if you go and visit Ridge in Montebello, just outside San Jose, you go to the top of the mountain and the views that you look over are Silicon Valley. And the landmarks are the headquarters of Google and Apple and other tech giants. Whereas Napa, after 1976, just mushroomed into a region that produces nothing but wine. And now there are over 500 wineries in Napa. How much influence the Judgment of Paris had in the development of Napa wine compared to the lack of development of Santa Cruz mountains is one of those talking points that can never be properly concluded. If you go to uh, if you go to Napa Valley, you're likely to hear in a tasting room someone telling you that Napa, that the Judgment of Paris definitively proved that California wine is better than French. There have been dozens and dozens and hundreds and thousands of these tastings. Sometimes California wine is going to win, sometimes French wine is going to win. They don't really prove anything, except that California wine is just as good as French wine. It's just a very different style. So that's just a historical overview of uh, the US, looking at the East Coast and also the development of California's wine industry. In the next episode, we'll look at the different regions of California. So thank you for listening. This is Matthew, and this has been Matthew's World of Wine and Drink.